of 80s high and all our other wonderful listeners you have made it back from a beautiful summer to the best 80s pop culture podcast that covers the music the movies the games the toys and everything else that made the 80s the most radical decade in history we're your hosts i'm ben and i'm chris and this is 80s high school is back in session welcome back students Oh my goodness. It feels like we just finished season two. It's just like school. You're like, oh, I've got this whole summer ahead of me. You like, you sneeze and turn your head and suddenly it's back to school's time. And you're like, what? What happened? (laughs) Are you feeling any kind of anxiety? Like, are you looking at your new class schedule? Do you not know these teachers? Did you find your locker? How are you feeling coming in to our junior year of 80s high? Well, that's just it, Ben. It is junior year. It's season three. So, like, we know what's up. Junior year is really where you hit your stride. You're just, you're confident. You know what's what. Sure, there's going to be some new stuff. There's going to be surprises. There's going to be joys and heartaches and all that stuff. But you know what? You've got it. You are a seasoned student by now. So we're just like, we're not phoning it in. That's senior year. Yeah, season we're, not four, co- we're not that cocky yet. Yeah. We're cocky. Season four, we're just going to like barely show up to this podcast. <laughs> we're, just like, uh, we're talking about, I don't know, something 80s. Just find out next episode. Just, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're going to talk about the number eight. That's what we're going to do. Right. Just the number uh, eight. Sure. Or whatever. Yeah, eight we're, zero. We're, we're doing it. But <laughs> this season, like we're at the peak of our game. We're experienced enough, but we're not jaded enough. It's a sweet spot, man. Please, if anyone out there has a screen printing business, I would like experienced enough, but not jaded enough as a t-shirt. <laughs> I would really appreciate that. It, it's a narrow slice, not only in high school, but in life. Like there's just this little, <laughs> this little point you reach. As it is tradition coming back off of summer break, the first essay you always have to write is what I did with my summer vacation. That is true. Can you give us a little rundown? Like, what what'd you do for your summer? How'd it go? What were you up to? It was a great summer. I got to do some fun stuff. We got to do some fun stuff together. Heck We've yeah, had we had some regular camping trips, which have been great. But to keep this kind of 80s specific, please, because this is what we're doing, there have been some like huge nostalgia bumps Ooh. this summer. First and foremost, I got three. I Whoa. have three. I don't know if you have the any triumvirate. that overlap with this. Please. And the first one is Hulu. Dropped a Predator prequel. <gasps> I haven't seen it. No the spoilers. Movie? I haven't got to see it. No, there's no spoilers. We don't spoil this stuff. But I watched Prey and it was really good. Oh, I That's can't all wait to see it. It was a very well done, surprising prequel to an 80s hit Predator. <sighs> and uh, you got to go check it out, Ben and listeners, if you haven't already. It's great. So that's a big one. That was huge. Before you move on from number one, you are amazing at impressions. Can you do a predator roar? Can you give us like a predator sound? I really can't. That's a hard one. It's a very hard one. There's a lot of sound mixing in that. We need that guy. His name is Michael something. We need the guy from uh, the uh, Police Academy movies. (laughs) Oh, 
yeah. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> he did all the sound effects. Um, and he was in Spaceballs. Spaceballs. He could do like the he could do like the electronic kind of sounds. <laughs> I can't really. It's got yeah, the, beeps, I can't. the creeps and the sweeps. Beep, boop, 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 boop. Yeah, he did all that stuff. Michael Winslow. Michael Winslow. Winslow, of course. It's Michael, Michael Winslow. Winslow. What so a treat good. that guy. So what an amazing. talented. The second one I didn't see, but everyone says is great, which is Top Gun Maverick. So again, another oh, 80s yeah. movie that got a sequel, not a prequel. But by all accounts, it's a really enjoyable movie. Did you see it? Uh, not only did I see it, I saw it at a drive-in movie theater what? in a Navy town. It was like the most <laughs> ideal way to see Top Gun. It it's was amazing. awesome. People were losing their minds. It was great. It was, and it's a fantastic movie. That's awesome. I mean, not expected. Like a movie like that, you kind of just expect it. It's kind of like, um, and it's not an 80s property, but uh, Independence Day, right? They made that sequel to it. And you're like, of course, they're going to make a sequel. And I didn't watch it, but I heard it was like, eh. Yeah. And so you would expect that of a Top Gun movie that came out, what, 30 some years after the original? Yeah. But man, I heard it hits. Like, great. So so that's awesome. It's so good. And the last big one. Can you guess what it is? The last big one. <gasps> no. Uh, did you... Think did nostalgia. You, think uh, 80s nostalgia. Did you bid on and finally win a Garbage Pail Pick Kids card? <laughs> is that what you did? Was I paid $40,000 for, what was it? <laughs> Something Nick, uh, the, the vampire. Yes. Uh, no, the Stranger Things Season 4. Oh. Hotly, hotly anticipated Season 4. Again, no spoilers, but the biggest thing was there was a song. Oh my god, I have this written Kate down. Bush. Kate Bush had her song Running Up That Hill, which hit like top of the charts again. Yeah. 35 or whatever years later, after it was a huge single in the 80s uh, and album, hits again. Like that was like the big anthem for one of the characters in this season. And just Amazing that there is a massive 80s callback in this, again, very nostalgia show, but it manages to make a song popular again for a whole new generation and audience. Super cool. My feeling is going to be a roller coaster in how I respond to this because I had my notes about running up that hill again, too. So, season four, I think, is my favorite since the first season. It's great. It's really good. Very good. That scene is incredible where that song mm. first drops. Like it just mm. how it's shot and the pacing and like what that song means and that instant. What a, like incredible cinematography. Uh. But the downsides of this is that Stranger Things season four came at the beginning of the summer. And then for the rest of the freaking <laughs> summer, every third song was Kate Bush's <laughs> Running Up the Hill. And by like July, I was like, if I hear this song one more time. Oh, overstated's oh. welcome. It's too much of a good thing. Overplayed, overplayed, but amazing when it, when it drops in the episode. So good. Well, at least you weren't the character in the episode who had to keep listening to it constantly. Right. So at it's least right. there's exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, at least I didn't have that. God, I would have lost my mind by now. So those were my big like summer 80s nostalgia bumps. It was pretty incredible. A lot no, of I great callbacks. I love them. It's so good. I, you know, I had the Kate Bush thing written down for me. The other one is kind of some bummer news. I love down the road, 10 minutes away is like a classic pinball arcade mm, with some yeah. model, with some modern uh, 
arcade games in it too, but a lot that people would love who listen to the show. I mean, you've got Asteroids in there, Centipede is in there, the original mm. Mario Brothers where it's just you know, one mm. screen you jump around trying to get the Goombas and stuff. But um, they just like put out a press release two weeks ago that they're closing in November. Ah, and that very is, sad. That is a rare treat, like a proper, not a Gameworks, not a big chain, but like a mom and pop, get your roll of quarters, go with your friends and just, just go through that roll of quarters with your arcades. So the, hey, that was kind of some bummer news. So I think I'm going to spend my uh, birthday actually there next month and, and then, you know, give it a proper farewell. It's very fitting. And if a Ghostbusters pinball machine goes up for auction you need to bid on it just get it just i'm there it. i'm 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 eyeing it it's right in the front <laughs> lobby if it's not going back to someone's house and he's not keeping it I, i've thought about it it's a beautiful oh, that's cabinet. true some of them are like from a private collection you're right, right but right maybe just maybe i hope for you that you can yes. have the whole ghostbusters gang in your little like oh, garage area, your, it would be my dream. Oh, in so the bin fun. zone, in the bin zone, in the bin so. zone. I like that. <laughs> Let's call it the bin zone. That's a good place. Welcome to the bin zone. Well, in my summer, so much like you, I uh, I really got out. You know, when you live in the Pacific Northwest, it rains for eight months around here. You still go out because if you didn't, you lose your mind. But once that sun starts shining consistently, you know, mm. I I really spent my summer in the forest on mountains. On the beach, you know, I really got outdoors, which honestly was the core inspiration for our very first topic of season 380's high. Because when you're out there on the trail, you're out there on the beach, it's the most perfect time to unplug. There are no electronics, and more than anything, there are no batteries included in that vacation not included uh which is what this first topic is going to be about that i'm so excited to get in and talk to you about i thought you were going to say you saw some sentient spaceships and i've I been right. really excited well, I, I was have... like why did you tell me why are you revealing it now right i, sh- I, I was abducted <laughs> that's going to be on our other after hours episode it's going to be That'll really be good contemporary culture we'll talk all about your, <laughs> my, your my alien abduction on the spaceship by the fixits the fixits right well, I've redrawn a Harry Potter-esque map of the oh. of the school so I can try and find the classrooms again. I'm a little rusty, but I think I know how to get back to history class. Uh, if you trust me, let's give it a shot and see if we can dig into the history of our first topic of season three. I will move aside. I got to get under this invisibility cloak. Oh, nice. See you there. Well, Ben, you were so excited you ran ahead and I fell out from under the cloak. So I just went to the rumor requirement and said, I need to get to history class. Oh, smart, smart. And here I am. So it worked out. Well, I feel like my mischief has been made on my way to Mm. get here. Managed indeed. And we're excited to dive in for the first one because if you did not catch on to the illusion in Homeroom, we have selected the 1987 film Batteries Not Included. To kick off season three, which I'm very excited about. I have to tell you something really quick, Ben. Please. So you dropped a very oblique hint oh. about this topic on social media. You included oh, right. the Energizer Bunny. I did. And immediately after I was at work, classmate Reagan, who I work with, messages me on Teams and is like, I'm so excited for this topic. And here was the disconnect. I didn't know you put the Energizer Bunny up. Oh, yeah. So I thought she was talking about this movie. I think she thinks we were talking about the Energizer Bunny, like, as, as a thing. Oh, yeah. Because that broke in the 80s. So I think you led a few people astray. They're going to expect us to talk about that little pink bunny that I love keeps it. going and going. No, but instead. I love it so much. <laughs> 
classmate Nick messaged us and he was like, you better get into the details about the Duracell versus Energizer battle oh, of the 80s. Man. I was like, wow. You're, you just rickrolled some people. I know. You I'm really sorry. Oh, rickrolled. Rick Astley. That's a nice 80s throwback. Look at you go. Indeed. The Indeed. latest key building. You always do a great summary. Do you want oh. to try and set up just if you haven't seen it, haven't heard of it. What is the cinematic masterpiece that is asterisk, lowercase, italics, batteries not included? So in this movie, we are introduced to a group of people living in this, like, lone standout apartment building. It's on the verge of being demolished. All these buildings around it are being leveled. And we meet these people at, like, their darkest moment. They're trying to hang on and... Everything looks like they're just going to have to leave and this building's going to be destroyed. Two of the residents own a restaurant, a little lunch counter on the first floor. It's adorable. Riley's Diner, I believe it's called. And we reach their darkest moment. And one of the main characters asks for help. And who should show up but two little spaceships, sentient living creatures, tiny, tiny they may be, are able to fix everything that's wrong in this world and save these people in this building from their demise. Perfect. I love it. How'd I do? How'd I do? No, it was, you nailed it. That was my first test of the school year, everybody. It was really good. So how did this film come to be? So of course, in the 80s, we're familiar with, there were so many family-friendly science fiction space movies coming out. You have Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which the first one I give an example of is not necessarily family-friendly. That movie could be scary. Uh, But you've got E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Starman, Explorers, Mac and Me. Mac and Me. (laughs) It was was this total change. Flight of the Navigator, don't forget that Oh, Flight of the Navigator, so good. Yeah. But what's interesting is sort of before this, in the 1950s, you sort of had, and before that, most films that talked about alien visitors were really scary. You know, it was about aliens being very hostile. They're yeah. coming down to Earth with ray guns. You think of like War of the Worlds. Aliens yeah. are something meant to be feared, which is even if I can nerd out for a minute. Mm, before please. his passing, Stephen Hawking had a warning that I always thought was interesting where he said, we should stop being loud in the universe. We need to be quiet because any alien wow. race that's advanced enough to travel across the universe probably has run out of resources and they're looking to harvest and not for oh. like diplomacy. And that's what the 40s and 50s were all about with alien cinematography. Mm. And so you have this changing wave in the 80s of like, what if they were benevolent or lost or needed our help when you look at like E.T. or Mac and Me. Right. So this, I never knew. I was so excited to find this. From 1985 to 1987, Steven Spielberg produced a kind of Twilight Zone series called Amazing Stories. Yeah. You know, Twilight Zone was all over the place. It was kind of horror, uh, but a lot of sci-fi. And Amazing Stories uh, blended more like sci-fi and fantasy, but really fantasy, what it was heavy on. And a lot of like speculative fiction, like what ifs and those kinds of things too, right? right, right. Yeah. So one of the standing authors who writes episodes for Amazing Stories, Mick Garris kind of proposed this idea of the summary that you gave. Mm. And the original episode was called Gramps and Grammy and Company. Wow. How do you feel about that? Gramps and Grammy and Company. Terrible title. It's a terrible title. It does not roll off the tongue. No, and it's not... Interesting. Like the title should be something that is like, oh, what's that all about? Yeah. You know, batteries not included. You're like, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. So, but Spielberg loves the concept of this idea. And obviously he does. Like, look at the kind of films he's into in the 80s that he's making. 
And this is after E.T., is that right? Yeah, this comes after E.T. This comes okay. after Mac and me. So this is all about like kids and aliens coming together. So he loves the concept, doesn't really necessarily like the script that Nick Garris writes for it. Mm. So they bring in director Matthew Robbins, who brings a lot of people along with them. And they it goes through a series of drafts and um, who really crushes it at the end uh, is this author and writer, Brad Bird, who had just left Disney. over some creative differences, wasn't feeling it. And I feel like, now that you've seen Batteries Not Included, do you feel a little Disney in it? 100%. Yes. Absolutely. After watching it, it felt, there's just a Disney tone and a pacing to it. The final script that actually gets used for the film is co-written by the director, Matthew Robbins, Brent Maddock, Brad Bird did the screenplay, and then actually they bring this other writer, S.S. Wilson, and you're going to love this. S.S. Wilson co-wrote Tremors oh. and Short Circuit. Uh, Another like yes. friendly, confused robot movie. Yes. It was perfect. Yes. Oh, amazing. Oh, Tremors was not. Tremors was no. a nightmare. No, but no, no, no. <laughs> Like no robots at all. <laughs> Tonally very different, but you know, creatures nonetheless. So I had to look this up and I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I thought it was interesting because I didn't know. Can you tell the difference between a script and a screenplay? Oh, uh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Is a screenplay adapted from something and a script is an original? I'm so glad I asked. Okay, see, this is like, we're here in school. We're supposed to learn. So I had to look this up. So a script has character dialogue and stage directions, but that's it. A screenplay has that, but other production and story details that might Hmm. be happening off camera that you don't even know. It's just much more detail. Oh, interesting. So again, Bird comes in and does the screenplay. That's the Disney guy. And everybody else did the script together. All right. So Amblin Universal Greenlight and Produce It. And Principal Photography started in New York in August of 1986. Mm. And I love the location scouting. Did you read how they had to find this site and how they set up the site for the movie? I kind of remember, but I'm going to fumble through it. So I'm going to leave it to you. Please, I feel like you're going to be, you're going to have the expert Fumbling answer. in the rubble is perfect. So they were trying to scout all around New York because, as you kind of set up, there is one apartment building left and everything else has been demolished around it and they're Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of it. And that's pretty hard to find in heavily developed New York, which is where they wanted to set the movie in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Right. And so what they eventually did was they finally found an empty vacant lot with burned out buildings all around it. The building is is actually you can you can go find it. Now the set is not there, but the location for our New York listeners out there is on 8th Street between Avenues C and D on the Lower East Side. It's still there to this day? Well, the building's not there, but you can go see like that's, you know, those are the oh. av- the avenues in the street are still there and you can go and Got it. It's not like it ladder 8, I think it is that you can go see in the Ghostbusters Firehouse is right. still there, which is pretty right. awesome. So what they did was they they built this apartment building like on the empty lot for them to house they Mm. built this beautiful diner on the first floor and then they had to truck in 60 dump truck loads of rubble to cover the vacant lot to try and give this idea that everything's being torn down around it that sounds dangerous to be around that as an actor or a crew and as we'll talk about like carlos goes the the chief goon in the movie Go sprinting through this in so many shots, like narrowly missing backloaders and bulldozers. Yes. I, I, he, I feel like he did an early version of parkour in a lot of the shots. Seriously. He, yeah. The, uh, dude. Now, I loved the authenticity of this set. Did you read about sort of the authenticity of the troubles it caused in New York? 
I didn't actually. This is delightful uh, that it caused three different issues in New York. The first okay. was that the sanitation department of New York City came by and started to take away prop garbage one morning. They were like loading garbage trucks off Did they of this think it lot. was real garbage? They thought it was real garbage. They didn't know it was a movie <laughs> set and they started cleaning it up, oh, which I freaking great. love. That's amazing. The second is um, some plumbers came from New York and okay. were demanding to see the permit for the diner because they couldn't find like a water permit at City Hall in the oh construction boy. records of this building. Oh, you don't mess with City Hall, man. Right. It's oh, my be goodness. Like, Bro, this is a movie set. Like, there's not a real thing. Would a movie set still need permits, though? I guess only if it has real functioning, if it's, like, attached to the grid, I guess. Like, if it has water from the city or Oh, so maybe it wasn't attached, but they just assumed it. So everyone right. thinks this is real, is what you're saying. Well, I, I haven't gotten to the coup de grace yet. Oh, 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 okay, there's more. Which is almost every day, people try to come in and eat in the diner. <laughs> that all these people were like, oh, my God, this is great. There's a new diner in town. Awesome. <laughs> And they'd be like all mad the door was locked. Or they'd come in and it'd be like full of like cameras and props and stuff. And people would be like, who is this guy? It was, oh my I gosh. love it. So they did a great job in the set design because everybody in New York thought it was real. Quick 80s tangent. On the other podcast I guest host on, Ding Dong Darkness Time, yes. we did a season of Stephen King and we did a maximum overdrive. <gasps> what I learned in the research, what we both learned, Allison and I, was that the truck stop they made for Maximum Overdrive, same issue. People thought it was a real truck That's stop. So like awesome. truckers were stopping for food and gas and it was a set. That's awesome. So again, very convincing to the huh? point that like actual people were like, oh, I'm going to stop and get a little something to eat. Nope, can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Super cool. Super cool. I uh, Now this is, I feel like this is an adorable fact that you would, a really charming fact that you would love to share with everybody. Did okay. you read up on Jessica Tandy and Hune Cronin? Yes, they're married in real life. Thank you. Yeah, so, so tell us about that a little bit. For decades. Well, okay, I don't know a lot of the details, but I think they were married since, is it the 40s? Yeah, by the time this movie came out, they had been married for 52 years together. 52 And been in a lot of years. films together. Tons. In fact, another big 80s tentpole movie, Cocoon. Which you're like a Cocoon fan, right? I feel like you've mentioned Cocoon before. I may have mentioned it. I don't think I've seen it since it was out. I am not kidding. I believe I saw that movie in the theater. I was a kid. I don't think I understood anything about it. <laughs> but anyway, both of these actors married, been in how many movies been together? Like five or six? Oh, yeah. Is yeah, that yeah, more? Yeah, yeah, right around there. Super cool. But, but it made me want to go watch Cocoon and see if I could do the logic in my head to make these movies in a shared universe. Oh. You know, like pre-diner. Because Cocoon is all about these old people find a pool. And if you get in the pool, because of some alien stuff, you stay young. And so I'm wondering if like they stayed young and they're like, let's open a diner together since we're immortal. Like, and now this happened. I love this idea and I hope there's a fan theory because we've talked about these before in other movies. Yes. Like I think it was like Christmas Story and Black Christmas and like some other ones. Yes. So I'm like, yes. I'm hopeful. Well, it's so charming. You can see in the opening credits of this movie that it's all these old timey sepia and black and white photos of this couple yeah. in their marriage and getting the diner ready and up and running. And what's fun is these are actual photographs from their marriage, like throughout their life that are in the opening sequence, which is great. That's amazing because I think we're so used to Photoshopping or through the magic of movie or television making where people will just like, they'll have a family and they'll superimpose a person's face on there. So 
Right. You're kind of used to that, but the fact that this was authentic and it did not have to be recreated is rare and amazing. It's beautiful. I love it. Now, of course, we like a good sci-fi. We like some good tech. And so you've got, as you dropped, name dropped before, these little visitors from outer space that look like little mini flying saucers about the size of a dinner plate are called yeah. the Fixits. And the Fixits were made by Industrial Light and Magic. You might know them as ILM, which is George Lucas's studio that he created for a lot of the model work that happened throughout the Star Wars series in May of 1975. Is there anything else you want to sort of um, specify at this point in the history of the fixits? Just what you thought of them or how they're how they're designed? There seem to be two versions. I think there's a version that seems to be more like puppeteer, yeah, manipulated in order to create some of the shots that you see. And there's another one where I think it's more fast moving. Where I think it's I don't remember what the technique is called in movie making. But it's kind of like when the TIE fighter is flying by and Han Solo and Luke are shooting at it. And you almost see the little like box around it as it's like moving quickly. When the fixits are like zooping through the air quickly and all that. (laughs) Zooping. It has that quality or look to it where you can tell it's a different kind of movie making than the more up close puppetry uh, or manipulation that you can tell is manually being done. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think think what's really amazing – and you and I talk about this all the time, is there's just so much originality in the 80s. And even with the sci-fi movies we talked about, you know, the ship design and what is inside of it in Flight of the Navigator, there's never been mm-hmm. a movie like that ship and how that ship worked. And the the Pee Wee Herman, what is his real what is his real name? Paul Rubens. The Paul Rubin robot that's in there. And then you go to the originality of Johnny Five in short circuit yeah, that with found parts and metal parts conveys so much emotion and it's just such a dynamic robot. And I find that too with the fixits here. These, these fixits are, they look very different by the end of the movie. There's really five who are kind of throughout most of the movie, but each looks very unique, but you can still tell they're all from the same race or planet or whatever you want to call it. Right. They convey so much personality with really just their eyes and their how eyes, they yeah. move. Yep. Which is amazing to me because when you talk about a robot who conveys a lot of emotion and you're not talking about Johnny Five, people look at R2-D2 a lot from Star Wars. Right. But a lot of that's because of the sounds he makes. Beep, bop, boop, bop, boop, bop, bop, whatever. A little bit of the, like the head movement, but yeah, pretty yeah. much just the noise. But the fixits don't really make any sounds, but they still kind of have personalities, which is an amazing testament to the puppeteers behind them, I think. Well, Ben, the eyes are the windows to the soul. So, this guy. Of course. This guy. Right of course. here. This guy. Poetry day one. <laughs> this is great. So the movie comes together rather well. Production goes really fast. So like we said, principal photography started in August of 1986, and it premieres December 18th the following year. I mean, it's a small number of locations or sets, but you'd have to imagine... The little puppets, the little ships, yeah. like automatically builds an extra time. So that's Absolutely. cool. And plus, there's some post production. Again, I think all of the like the zooping shots, as I'm calling the them. Zooping. Please the don't zooping, lose that phrase. Zooping is so all good. All of the zooping comes from post production. That's not done on the set. It's a zooming swoop. Is that why? Is that why we're zooping? It's a swoop, but they zoom. It's a fast swoop. It's an onomatopoeia, big words. Uh, it's whoa, an onomatopoeia whoa, whoa, that junior makes... junior year, look out English. I know, Ooh. I know. Don't ask me to spell it, but yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's just a word that when you hear it, you're like, of course, I know what zooping means. I've never heard it before, and I know exactly what you're yeah, talking I let, about. Yeah, well, like, well zoop, done. Well done. Zoop. Well, like we did with Fraggle Rock. You know, when we talked about Fraggle mm. Rock, it was not necessarily called Fraggle Rock in other countries. True. And so when asterisk, lowercase, italics, batteries not included, premiered in the United States, it was not that named that movie elsewhere in the world. Did you see the alternate title? Twas not. It was called, of all things, Miracle on 8th Street. Is this better than Gramps and Grammy and Company or whatever that original title was? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's weird, Rake, because that's one heck of a throwback. This is a Christmas 87 movie. And Miracle on 34th Street, which yeah. I, I think most listeners are familiar with, but if you're not, it's a little girl who believes that she's found Santa, and he believes he's Santa, and they have to like try and prove it in court. It's actually a really charming Christmas movie. But that came out in 1947. Didn't they do a redo with uh, John Hammond from Jurassic Park and uh, the little daughter Richard from... Attenborough? I think so. And then I think they did one. The girl is the young daughter, the young sister from uh, 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 Mrs. Doubtfire. I think you're actually right. I do think they, you, they're right. This is first day of school. I'm trying to just get an A+. I'm trying to start this yeah. year off but the with OG, an amazing grade. But the OG title is a 40-year throwback. Oh, absolutely. That's what they did in Sweden. Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, and all Latin American markets. It's actually pretty wide where it went out with that title. It was a lot. Okay, I just hold the press, everybody. Two for two. I got both of those correct. What did you write? Mara Wilson, who played the, the little girl in it, and Richard Attenborough, Chris Kringle. I nailed it. I would give you an A minus because you said John Hammond from Jurassic Park, and <laughs> I said Richard Attenborough. I mean, I was just throwing it out there. What's his character's name, John Hammond? We, we make a fantastic team, is what I'm trying to say. We Together, I think we got the A+. Plus. Oh, together we get an A+, plus. individually I get an A-. Minus. Right, I, see I how bumped it, it up two little half Grading steps. Grading on a curve, for. this guy. Grading okay, fair enough. Curve. You know what? It was a team effort. It's a team grade. <laughs> We're both gonna get it's group work. Someone always does a little more in the group work. You know how this goes. Always. That's actually all I have for history, because we've, we've now launched the movie. It's out. Boom. Ooh. Anything else you want to hit in the history of this film? You missed such a delicious <gasps> detail. Get it. Did you see that there was another movie that was coming out? It was in production when this movie was released, originally going to be titled Batteries Not Included. Oh, go on. This is a movie we've talked about on this show, actually. It wasn't like the main topic, but it came up in another episode. Think oh, of Batteries Not Included. You. Yes, no, I did read this, but it's more yeah, okay, appropriate okay. for you to share this tidbit. Fair enough. So what is this movie that was originally going to be called Batteries Not Included? And then this movie came out and they're like, we got to change the name. We got to reconsider. So it came out the following year in 1988. And this little horrifying film is known as Child's Play. Child's Play was going to be called Batteries Not Included, it's which does make good. sense. Like the, the title does convey a, a little haunting, scary quality to it. Oh, yeah. I will say in the end, I think Child's Play was still a, it's a fantastic title. I wouldn't change it. I don't know that Batteries Not Included would have had 20 Chucky movies, but. <laughs> oh my God, no way. Right? But yeah, when I saw that, my jaw nearly dropped. I was like, oh. No, that's a great throwback. So and I, cool. I do want to clarify that like, just in case you're not aware of this, because we live in a very different world of technology these days. In the 80s, there was this boom in electronic toys that the world had never seen before. Whether mm -hmm. it's your Speak and Spell or your Teddy Ruxpin, there's so many children's toys that came 
that required batteries to work. But more often than not, those toys would not come with the batteries they needed. And I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming it's either like a business marketing issue like, cause that would require a big partnership with like Energizer or Duracell to get the batteries in with your toy. And that's complicated and legal and expensive. And Look maybe... at you with their marketing background. That's my guess. That's my guess. So on so many packages for toys, it would say batteries not included, mm-hmm. which is apparent is a, is a huge pain in the butt. Cause then you're like, I gotta go buy the toy angle, find the batteries that work as a double A, triple A. Do I need C? Do I have the weird, what's the weird square one that nobody ever has? The rectangle? Nine volt. Nine volt. A nine volt, which I think is what Teddy Ruxman actually took. I can't remember. Are you sure they weren't the big C batteries? Like two, like. So <laughs> huge. Yeah, that's probably why it was so heavy. But it's also annoying for the kid because you, it's Christmas. It's your birthday. You yeah. rip open the present and you're like, I can't play with it. There's no batteries. And you're like prying open remotes and your boom boxes trying to like fish <laughs> out. And your boom half boxes. Used, yes. Half dying batteries. Yeah. Right, but again, these robots, we come to discover the fix-its, don't seem to have any visible power source. Hence the title, Batteries Not Included. But they do need power, as as we find out. Oh my god, we're going to get into that. That's all I have for history. Is there anything else besides the wonderful Child's Play drop that you want to share with us? That was the last little tidbit. I'd love to talk about our original and our revisited experiences Mm -hmm. with this movie in chemistry class. Let's do, uh, hold on, here's my map to remember how to get to chemistry classroom history. Uh, Let's see if we can make it down the hall and not blow anything up when we get there. I'm going to try to grab onto this flying saucer and see if it can carry my weight down the hallway. I'm being lazy. (gasps) Look at you zooping away. I'm zooping. I'm zooping. (laughs) Oh, Chris, you made it. Hi. Look, at you got dropped off. I mean, at the end, my face was dragging on the hallway floor. I don't know that the janitor cleaned up this summer. Gross. It was kind of gross. Oh, I don't no. don't recommend. Well, there's plenty of rubbing alcohol around here, so we can wash your face off. We are in chemistry class. I stopped by the nurse's office real fast. Oh, good. So. <laughs> so when I told you that, I wanted this to be my first topic so that we could both research and be ready for yeah. tonight's recording. You said that you think you remembered seeing this in the theater. I believe so. Do you have any memories or recollections of your close encounters with batteries not included? It was really hard for me to think of a lot of specificity from the movie. I definitely saw it as a kid. I'm like 90% sure I saw it in the theater when it came out. Because I remember seeing the like the trailer on TV or whatever and being like, oh, I want to see that. And often my grandmother would take my brother and I to see movies. Yeah. Yeah. And we go to the movie theater and have lunch and all. It was like a big, like a fun nostalgia moment of childhood. I don't remember seeing it a lot of times, though. Like maybe one or two other times. Yeah. Perhaps at a friend's house if it was on like TV. But I don't know that I ever like popped it in and we we're like, okay, let's sit down and watch this again. This wasn't a VHS you were wearing down that like started exactly. to not look so great at the end. Okay. Most of what I recalled was after watching the movie and like, oh, yeah, I remember that shot. Oh, yeah, I remember that line. Like some of those moments came up only on rewatch. They weren't immediately in the memory bank as I was looking for them all. Did you see this movie as a kid? Was this your first watch? No, this was not my first watch. I remember this as a kid. I, you know, like you, I don't remember exactly when. I'm thinking, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners remember this, but... You would go to your movie rental place on a Friday night with friends, maybe when you're, with your parents when you were really young, 
And oftentimes, you might have not seen a commercial for a movie yet. And you just walk the aisles. Maybe you were a little scared to walk through the horror section and just look how scary the covers were on the movies. Right. You would really just kind of walk. And back then, man, just the cover art was so important for the marketing. Oh, yeah. What did the poster look like? What did the cover art have? What was a new release? That was really big. You'd walk the new release wall. Oh, for sure. And this has really compelling artwork. You've got the older couple who run the, the store asleep in bed. And right on the cover, there's no mystery. We're not hiding what the monster is here. This is not alien. You've got the fix. It's coming through the bedroom window at night. And you don't know if right. they're menacing. You don't know if they're friendly. And you're like, all right, I'm in. What is this all about? I like robots. Let's see what's going on. And I think that's how it was. I, I, it was probably just a shelf pick back in the day. And what made you pick this as our topic? Like, what was it about it that you thought, not only I want to make this a topic on 80s High, but I'm going to make this the first episode of season three. Like, what drove that? I'm so glad you asked, Chris. There are three reasons <laughs> oh, why okay. I picked this as a topic. Number one, as I said in Homeroom, summer was all about unplugging and not having any electronics. And so that was just one thing kind of in my head. Okay. The second one is because I'm, I'm so big on balance that in season two, I barely picked a film the entire time. You did not pick a lot. That's yeah, true. Yeah, and you had a lot of great film picks, which were fantastic. But, you know, we are a variety 80s show, so I had to delve into some other topics. I was like, you know what? I really want to make sure I get some movies in in yeah. season three. I think that'd be really good. And as always, our sweet spot, the number three reason in the realm of 80s podcasts is we try and bring the things you forgot you loved from the 80s. We don't yeah. do the things everybody knows and loves. We're not really annoying hipsters that pick the thing that three people have heard of and you don't <laughs> care to learn about. It's a thing you forgot you love. And I think batteries not included is the thing you forgot you saw that is charming AF and, and is really fun to watch again. I love it. That's amazing. I rewatched it in a delightful way. Weather was real nice. You know, it's fall, but it's not raining yet. And so I got out the projector and I threw the movie up on my back back of my house. Oh, that's amazing. And it was a clear sky. So you had all the stars out. So to watch this like sci-fi space movie on the back of the house, we invited the neighbors over. It was awesome. Oh, that's great. Man, how to break down chemistry. There's so much I want to get into. Okay. For me, most is about my rewatch. And as you know, I have a lot of questions for you. We got to get into Always it. questions. Always questions. I have a lot okay. of questions. There are two really old influences, though. I could have put this in history, but I'm like, mm, I'm just wondering. More than anything, the oldest influence, I think, that's on this show, a little bit more, not a lot more, but a little bit more than Miracle on 34th Street, it's just the classic fable of the elves and the shoemaker. Mm. That's all I can think of while watching this movie is like, this just feels like a modern adaptation of the elves and the shoemaker. Yeah. Even at one point, um, Dollar Store Michael Douglas, Harry Michael Douglas, I can't remember the actor's real name. Uh, his name is Dennis, uh, I believe it's Butsakaras. Butsakaras, that's a great last name. He even says at one point, I think we got elves! Like when they all wake up and they fixed a bunch of stuff. He's an artist in this, but he's definitely the guy that's trying to logic through everything that's going on. Yeah. Like he, he's the one that's kind of making the commentary of putting things together. You know, later we're going to talk about, he's even like, they're like self-replicating machines. Yeah. 
hinting at von Neumann probes. Whoa. Uh, which we'll, we'll talk about von Neumann okay. machines, I'm sure. So I'll just, we'll put a pin in that for now. But yeah, he's a, he looks like Michael Douglas with the beard. It's amazing. And I want to be clear, when you say bearded Michael Douglas, this is not Ant-Man Michael Douglas. This is Romancing the Stone Michael Douglas. This is like 80s Michael Douglas. 100% Romancing the Stone Michael Douglas. Put a beard on this guy, darken his hair just a little bit. And it's on point. And he plays Richard Schweikart in Better Call Saul. He's the lawyer for the firm that the character Kim is working for in a couple of seasons. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll probably remember, you'll know the guy, because when he came on screen, I was like, I know this guy. It's I one of those experiences guy. where you recognize someone and you don't know from where. And then finally it clicked in and I'm like, Better Call Saul. Yeah. Oh, nice and done. It's great. So the other, besides the Elton Shoemaker, the other really old throwback that actually someone else told me about in 1961. So we talked about the origin of Batteries Not Included was an episode for Amazing Stories, which was Spielberg's Twilight Zone-esque thing. There's an episode in 1961 of the Twilight Zone called The Invaders. Oh. And this is like before M. Night Shyamalan was born was Twilight Zone. It's kind of inspired because <laughs> it's always a twist. It's always a twist with Twilight Zone. Right. There's barely a line of dialogue in the entire episode. And a very tiny ship arrives in a home with a woman by herself. I know this one. I know this one. And you know it. I, You know, it's 1961. Should I spoil it? Should I not spoil it? Should I explain how the whole episode Too goes? soon, Ben. Too soon. 1961. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> um, but it is her interactions with this small ship and what goes on in her home with the ship. I would say it's an extremely different interaction than Batteries Not Included, but I'm just wondering the concept of a, a, a we always think of spaceships way bigger than us because we think we're, we're humans, right? We're so freaking selfish. We're so egotistical that every yeah. spaceship must be big enough for us to drive. So it is another story of like a spaceship much smaller than us. And what is that all about? Mm. Okay, so here's, here's my first like big psychological question for you in chemistry class. Here's what blows my mind. The Explorers, Mac and Me, E.T., Flight of the Navigator, Mm. All being sci-fi alien movies, what else do they have in common? Hmm. Children? Wow, you are on point. Did you go to summer school? Did you you finished your reading <laughs> list, didn't you? You did your summer reading list. Children are the heart and the heroes of all those stories. Yeah. But for some reason, Batteries Not Included sort of sits in that family of films, and it's a family-friendly film. But not only are kids not at the heart of the movie. I don't think there's a single child in the city of New York in this film. No. You never see any kids. No, I don't think so. I don't think you do. Why? We both saw this as kids. We loved this movie. It's a lot of fun, but it doesn't have the kids. That's so interesting to me. Like, why do you think yeah. it hits so well when we as kids couldn't see ourselves in it as the heroes? It's the fix-its. It's the robots. It's just the, how cool the robots are. And spoilers, the fix-its end up reproducing and having little babies. So it's almost like those kids are the interesting part. Like, I don't think kids are relating to the adult situations. Right. There's some fairly adult situations that's exactly going what on I'm, in yep, this that's movie. That's where I'm going. What drew me in probably as a child was just like, it was the machines. Yeah. It was the fix-its. That's what did it. It was fun. It was, it had the spirit of exploration and discovery and something different like E.T., but you're right. There are, I never thought of that, zero children in this movie. Right? Weird. Wow. Weird. So you're getting hmm. into it so we can go through the cast and this will be helpful. 
But it's a great segue because it's not about kids. And usually the kids, like in all those movies, you even think like Goonies, like the kids are going through their own drama, like they're coming of age stories and they're figuring out. But their drama is not super high level usually. But this movie, despite its charm, the residents are going through horrible things. Like they are dealing with very adult situations. Very adult stakes, 100%. Since you said you have a list of the actors, let's go through each actor and just talk about like what they're dealing with in the film. Yeah, so our main cast, we well, we open up with Faye Riley. She's walking down the street with a like an empty, it's not a shopping cart. It's like the little two-wheeled basket cart. Everybody knows exactly what you described it perfectly. Little old ladies always like yes. carry around or like wheel behind them. She's wearing, I think, mismatched shoes and like a, I don't know if you call it a house dress or a sundress or something like that. She's played by Jessica Tandy. And what is she dealing with? Like, what's her heavy? This is like a family-friendly Disney-esque movie. We don't know until like the final act, I would say. We don't really know what's going on. What we do know is she seems out of it. She seems, you might think it's dementia. You might yeah. think she's losing her mind. But she's confusing things. She's not right. seeing reality like everyone else does. And we start to learn that one of the other characters she starts referring to as Bobby. Yeah, right. And we don't know why initially, and then we start to learn why. But we find out toward the end of the film what really happens. And it's it's heart-wrenching, but we'll, I think, get there. Yeah. Faye is married to Frank, and Frank is played by Hume Cronin, as we mentioned. Jessica's real-life husband mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. 52 years at that time. Pretty impressive. And so they own this little lunch counter shop that I'm talking about. And again, so they're here while this building's going to be torn down. The goon who we'll get to, he and his sub-goons. Uh, sub-goons, that's funny. <laughs> the sub-goon yeah. class, okay. The good. goon and the sub-goons come in and basically smash up his restaurant yeah. to get them to leave. This is the hired muscle from the big bad that we'll learn about. Of course. Who's basically going through threatening all of these residents and they smash this entire Restaurant to bits, including all of these old black and white photos. Ugh, right? Memorabilia hanging up in the restaurant. An old, beautiful jukebox. Smash, smash. Everything destroyed. Yeah, right? So Hewn's restaurant is destroyed. He is taking care of his wife, who seems to have something, some sort of mental distress that she's going on throughout yeah. the movie. So he's having to help her through a lot of that. And as we learn as well, the two of them share a horrible tragedy we learn at the very end of the movie. So yeah. like, right out the bat, these two characters are tragic characters. We also have Harry Noble, played by Frank McRae. Harry was an amazing boxer. Right. In his heyday. Right. Who doesn't really speak. And we meet him and he's like replacing these tiny little tiles on the floor. He's just kind of tinkering away at that. We don't learn a whole lot about him until later in the movie. But he's basically, he's speechless. And he likes watching shows and commercials. And that's kind of what we know of him at first. Yeah, I mean, he's, but he's huge, gentle. He's a big guy. He's a gentle giant. He's a huge figure. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of, um, who's the character in Mice and Men? Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Lonnie? Lanny Lonnie, uh, I think. Man, wow. we are really coming at it with high school right now. <laughs> but like, you know, big gentle giant, no mental disability of any kind, but just a huge guy. But really, he has like three lines at the end of the movie. And he's very cowering. He seems very scared of everybody. He's a very afraid to stick up and help really with anything for most of the film. Did you say Lenny? Lonnie. 
Oh, you were so close. I was so Lenny. close. Dang it, Lenny. It's Lenny. Well, where I'm from, you pronounce E's like aw. So I, I, I read Lenny and I just said Lonnie when you say it out loud. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Well done. Nicely done. But yeah, so there's something tragic in his background that you're like, all right, he's a famous boxer, but he won't talk and he's scared of everything. Yeah. Who else? We've got a couple more main characters. We have Marissa Estival, who is played by Elizabeth Pena. Yeah. Marissa is this young woman who's extremely pregnant. Yeah. Girlfriend's going to burst any moment. She's six months in and has never seen a doctor. She's six months in. Okay. She looks like she's at like eight and a half months. Yeah. She's got the, the full baby belly going on and she has not seen a doctor because, you know, you get a sense these are obviously not people who are well-to-do financially. No. They're living in a, a rundown, historic, but rundown building, uh, which these goons are seeing fit to make even worse living conditions uh, yeah. through their terrorizing. And not that you need this, but she's got a very strong, supportive partner who's invested with her for her life there to care for her and her soon-to-be-born child, right? Uh, no. This is a boyfriend who is on the road performing. He's a musician. So he's on the road with his band and has left his spouse, his partner. Were they married or no, their boyfriend-girlfriend? Right. So she's pregnant out of wedlock too. Yeah. No yeah. judgment, but adds complications. They're together, but he's not around. And through the dialogue, we learn that no one thinks this dude's coming back. Like yeah. she's like, oh, he'll be back. And everyone else is like, yeah, no. Like none of the other yeah, residents no. and characters believe this one iota. Right, right. And last but not least, bearded Michael Douglas. Oh, Mason Baylor himself, BMD, bearded Michael Douglas. Uh, <laughs> and he is an artist, a painter, who's living in this old building because it's inspiration for him. Yeah. And we meet him where his girlfriend, she has no more Fs to give for this guy. And they have this huge argument as she's, it's the classic, I'm packing my suitcase and all my things and we're going to argue on my way out the door. And they have some amazing back and forth lines. This is a great bit of dialogue. Oh, I do have a question for you about one of their dialogues, but yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So they're just going back and more. And she, you know, she's complaining like you like these old things, these terrible things. And he's like, this is inspiration. It's reality. And she has this great line. This is the 80s, Mason. Nobody likes reality anymore. I wrote that down. So good. Chris, <laughs> explain it to me like I'm five. Explain it to me like I'm a freshman in 80s high. What does that mean? What is she saying? The 80s were such hyper reality, right? Like the 80s were this time of excess of... Everything's crazy. Everything's bright and brilliant and loud and flashy and neon and, and television and movies. Everyone's trying to escape reality. And I was like, oh, sister. Oh, sister. Wait a couple decades. Wait. wait till the If you think no one likes reality anymore, just you wait. Just wait. But it was such a okay, great little you. nugget of a line. I loved it. Well, so yeah, this is our this is our tragic cast who's around this. There's other characters if you want to get into them, but those that's sort of our core who are all suffering in this apartment building. I would call these people our protagonists. We have some main antagonists, one in particular that we should probably talk about sure, at this point. Sure, sure, Because we've already talked about him. He's the head goon, head goon. smashing everything up. Goon and the goonettes. The goon, goon and the goonies. We, uh, we have Carlos, yeah. played by Michael Carmine. Carlos is this, we come to learn, ambitious guy. He's trying to like find his way and come up in the world, probably in the worst way possible, by being a goon for this, what would you call him, a real estate investor? What was he? He's, yeah, he's a real estate developer. It's very strange to me that we're really not introduced to the real villain until like the third act. 
Maybe we it's don't really late. It's a really strange thing, I think, in a film. Yeah. And Carlos, so I forgot, Carlos has a whole character growth arc, which is impressive. I forgot that that was going on. He does. I would kind of call him an antagonist, kind of turned protagonist. Anti-hero? It takes him a, is he an anti-hero? Let's say anti-hero. Yeah. yeah let's call him that. I, I don't think he comes full protagonist, but he does become maybe an anti-hero. But during these introductory scenes when we meet Carlos, like... Oh my goodness. Man. What does he do? Look, if you're listening to this show right now and you or friends or family are renting property, you know life is crazy and life is hard. Rental costs compared to income are some of the most imbalanced they've ever been in modern society. And it's really hard to make ends meet. But Mm -hmm. most of us don't have a squad of goons coming in and trashing our apartments grabbing our body parts through our doors, yes. trying to harass us to scare us off the property so that our building can be demolished. Like, it yes. could be, it's terrible. Gang, I know it's terrible. I know it's hard. Keep your head up out there. But it actually could be worse. And batteries not included. It's crazy. He does some very disgusting things at the beginning of this movie. It's hard to come back from that. I mean, he, yeah. he does make a comeback, a, a turnaround, but grabbing at somebody through the door and threatening people and smashing things and just like, it's rough. It's really rough. It's, it's really rough. It, again, for a wholesome, family-friendly movie, like you do start off at like a pretty dark space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It does not pull punches. No. Yeah, right? Exactly. The, there's so much weird and interesting going on with this movie. Like you said, it is a family-friendly movie, but there's a lot in here that's not family-friendly, that's really dark, that's really heavy. Yeah. One thing I want to get to, the opening scene of the movie, which is like the diner, and they come in, something about that whole scene felt very much like live community theater to me. I would argue this entire movie has that quality because nothing really looks real. Yeah. Everything looks like an onstage production of real life. Yes, it's like Little Shop of Horrors. You know how like Little Shop of Horrors is it's like it's Skid Row, but it's yeah. not actually it's meant on to Skid look Row. Broadway-ish. Like it's supposed to look like a production. It's a characterization, a caricature of yes. Skid Row. And this movie felt like a caricature of the world they were in. It felt like um Our Town. If any listeners have ever seen Our Town, in this mm, opening mm. shot in the diner, the diner's perfect. And so first, like, Faye comes in, rearranges some things on a table to make them more perfect. And she's, like, dusting a little bit and singing along to herself. And then, like, her husband comes in and they start talking about the diner. But the blocking is just so uh, robotic, which I guess is great for batteries not included. It's, it's so unnatural as they come in and they're tidying up. It, just, it felt so community theater to me, especially that first scene. But I think you're right with the whole movie. Some of the scenes were clearly they're on a fake rooftop with a fake matte background of New York City. Yeah. Like it's clearly fake. There's so many scenes of that. I think it was intentional. (laughs) Question mark? Like because the movie is a lot about nostalgia, I feel like it was supposed to be that way. I don't think it was just shot cheap. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. I know how the movie answers this question, but I need you to answer this question for me. Okay. Why do the aliens pick these people? I mean, they certainly think, theorize, discuss why. Yeah. It's completely unclear. It is never answered. We're all left to sort of speculate. And everyone thinks it's either about them or about someone else in the group. Everyone thinks that like they came to help this single person is what everyone's saying. So this little Motley crew all thinks the same thing. And we might be led to believe it's Frank because the turn happens when all this awful stuff we've talked about 
has happened. Everything's smashed up, ruined. We're at the like lowest point. And Frank is sitting there in the diner and he just says, please, somebody help us. Right. And the very next scene, who arrives but our two little spaceship friends. I mean, I felt a little religious there because it's like a prayer and then these things show up. Yeah. But I'm like, there's broken stuff all over the world. There's probably other planets with broken stuff. Arguably much deeper suffering than what these people are. Absolutely. Not that we should ever engage in the suffering Olympics. I am not a fan of that. This is not a competition. But if you think about there are spaceships in outer space and they're like, we need to fix something. What would make them zoom in, zoop in? What would make them (laughs) zoop in? Like there are horrors and atrocities happening around the world. No. How about the suffering artist that just got dumped? I think he needs help. Like what? (laughs) What? I mean- I think it's meant to be unanswered, much like why did Bill Murray's character get a million chances in Groundhog Day? What is it about him that he got chosen for this experience? So I feel like it's one of those like storytelling things where, you know, it's good that the characters ask the question and explore it and are not just like oblivious to it. But I don't ever think it's intended to be answered. And it is not. Okay, it is not. It is not. It's a great question to ask, though. It's a great question to totally. ask. Totally. Yeah. This is another one where the movie is pretty clear on it, but I want your I want your answer. All right. Is there any room for the question to be asked? Are the saucers sentient or piloted? Mm. You have some men in black vibes where you've got the the like the face of the guy opens up and there's a tiny little Alien, absolutely like piloting the giant person. I actually personally, I thought of Independence Day. You know, where you're led sure. for the most of the movie that the big aliens are the alien, and then they capture one, and the head pops open, and you realize like it's a robot that they drive, and the real aliens are True. actually quite small. They're like toddler sized. Hmm, a great question. I saw them as sentient beings, probably because they had eyes. And communicated with each other in that way. And they would use little like mechanical extensions for like hands yeah, or, right. you know, manipulation of some kind. But you don't think that's, a, you don't think there's a little guy in a cockpit like, okay, extend the buzzsaw and like hits the button and like shoots the buzzsaw out. Are you suggesting these are doozers? Is that what you're thinking from <laughs> Fraggle doozers. Rock to bring it back? Totally, are there little doozers, doozers manipulating? From Fraggle Rock. I'm just There's saying. your real crossover. There's your real shared universe <laughs> right there. And batteries Deucers, Fraggle Rock That's guys included. I don't think so. It's a fantastic question. I love it. I think no. I think no. I think they, in my mind, they are little sentient robotic. They're Johnny Five. They're Johnny Five. Yeah, and that's Johnny what, that's Five what the is movie alive. And even when Bearded Michael Douglas takes the magnifying glass and shines <laughs> it inside one of the it ships, does. you see this sort of running network of synapses yeah. and all very busy inside. Yeah. I think you're right, but I I loved... Well, there's even a scene where the door opens when she's going to give birth and the the little little payload door opens... And you see a little. Unless you're really clear, we're talking about the the robot gives Sorry, birth, right. we not don't want the it. woman we don't who watch is super Marissa pregnant. Give birth. When the payload comes and there's a little shadow of feet coming down, sort of a a nod to the day the Earth stood still, and mm. you think like, oh, maybe this is the pilot finally coming out, and no, it's a baby robot. She's giving birth. Spoilers three times. Whoa, she sorry. Has a, she has a litter. She has a litter. By the way. Are we getting to the fact that there's technically names for all of these ships? Are we getting to that at any point? Right. Well, Faye names them herself. Two of them, right? Flotsam and Jetsam. So two of the babies. Do you know all the spaceships technically have a name? Are they ever, all the is it said in the movie? 
It is not. I only found this in my research on, of all things, an amazing little fandom.com wiki. Who are they? What are their names? Because I've been starting to refer to them as like yellow eyes, red eyes, green eyes, because I didn't, blue eyes. Sure, like I didn't have anything sure, you got no to. no idea. And at first they're just two spaceships. You don't know that they're actually gendered and together. And at one point they're in the little, there's like a little shack. This is also the very uh, stage play moment. There's that little like wooden shack on top of the building on the roof where they kind of have taken up their residence, I have, right? I have That's where questions about that shack too. We're going to get back to that. They're bringing all of this metal objects, like little bits and screws. And, you know, Faye finds them out first, right? Yeah. You believe there's going to be an unreliable narrator thing for a long time where she's like, oh, the machines did it. And they're like, Faye, you're losing your mind, which they do a little bit. But pretty quickly, all of our protagonists find out their spaceships. That does not get drawn out too, too long. No. But anyway, we find out that they're all like kind of shacking up in there. And then they literally shack up in there. there. They literally shack up in there. What are they doing? Can't you tell? She's going to be hungry. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they're reproducing. They're they're making whoopee. Sweet, sweet loving. They're making zoopy? They're making zoopy. And lo and behold, they had these three little babies. Very dark moment we'll talk about. But Flotsam and Jetsam are two of them. And then the little one is Weems. 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 Do we get into this right now? We can. And I will say Weems, um, there's a great like 14 minute YouTube video where Adam Savage uh, actually unboxes Weems the model that's up for auction coming up. Oh my gosh. It, that's amazing. I think it sells Adam, Adam like, Savage of Mythbusters glory. If you don't know. Right. Sorry. Thank you. And a, a famous model maker who's worked on countless films, very sci-fi oh, yes. heavy. Um, but he very. sort of really breaks it down with the collector about Weems and what an amazing puppet it was from ILM. That's crazy. All right. Let's go through some sadness and then I'm going to bring it back. I'll, I'll try and resurface it. Okay. Super quick. Kilowatt. We'll call the father. Kilowatt. And Carmen is the mom. Okay, I like it. So Kilowatt and Carmen, and they have Flotsam and Jetsam and Weems. But this is the darkest moment of this. Despite all of this tragedy these humans are experiencing. That's a bummer. Carmen has two, like, little two little babies. And then, like, everything seems fun and fine. And then suddenly something happens, and a third robot comes out. But it's not alive. Yeah, it doesn't make it really freaking dark for this movie totally dark they have a funeral for it they bury it and then harry the prize fighter guy turned gentle giant grabs the little robot takes it back to his apartment long story short brings weems to life so harry can fix alien tech that's what we learned the boxer can fix alien technology I believe his backstory, which isn't fully shared, but again, I kind of found in the um, in that fandom wiki, which was a great font of knowledge. Yeah. I think the whole idea is he was a prize fighter, he retired, and then he became like a repairman. Uh, okay, okay. So okay. I guess the idea is he had some electronic repair experience, and so that's how he was able to kind of disassemble and and tinker with Weems to to bring him back to life. Okay. All right. Well, I feel a little better about that. When, he, when he's chasing after Weems in the city of New York, there's a fun little quick Easter egg where I think they, they spend a lot of time in Times Square, which is really just interesting to see what Times Square was like in the late 80s. And that's like the one experience where they're actually in a real world. Yes. And it's not a yes. like, again, a stage production version. They're actually in Times Square. I think they're in front of Radio City Music Hall, yeah, right? right around there. Yeah, yeah. But you can see on a theater marquee a poster for The Fly, which came out in 1986. So good. Which is just kind of a nice little throw. 
I want to ask you more of a, this is a real question. We are in chemistry class. I have a science question for you. Okay. Several times throughout the film, people get electrocuted because we're, we're dealing with these robots. There's a lot of electricity going on. No batteries, mm-hmm. but electricity. Mm-hmm. And their hair always shoots up really high. Sure. When you get electrocuted, does your hair really stand up on end? Is that a thing? I do not believe so. This is just for comedic effect. Very much for comedic effect. It's like a it's a, a very standard trope, I feel like, in a lot of there, yeah, exactly. See the TV and movies and all that kind of stuff. But don't because it's not a great experience. I've never been electrocuted or even like nothing above like static shock. Okay. Like I've never accidentally got zapped by an outlet. Certainly, you don't want to deal with they're dealing with like transformers at one point. Like you could be arc flash. He from puts that. a trowel. In a transformer to like keep the building powered or something. That well, that, that was in the circuit breaker box. Sorry, like circuit the, breaker the box. Fuse, yes. The fuse box, but um, it was nuts. But don't. I mean, don't. I think it had a wooden handle, but still, kids, don't uh, do this. Yeah, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. That's the other thing. Kids, don't try this at home. There's a lot of stuff with electricity where I was like, I don't know if that was the exact result that would happen. And for a family and kid movie, like there's a lot of toasters and bathtubs. They're shoving forks and outlets. Like there's a lot oh, of, boy. you know, there was a, like a lot of stuff in ALF we talked about in the ALF episode that had to get censored yeah. because kids were trying it at home. Cats yes. and microwaves. Batteries not included. No Fs given. They were like, try yeah. all the electrical fires you can make in your home. Go nuts. No, don't. Please. I have one final theoretical question for you. Oh, okay. The fix-its eat metal scrap. Yeah. That's their jam. That's how they stay powered. If they don't eat metal scrap, it looks like they can like charge, they can plug into an outlet and get some stuff off the electric grid, but they eat a lot of like screws and nails and metal. Well, we don't know if they eat them. They might use them to fix and reproduce or recreate or whatever. Yeah, so they need metal scraps to reproduce. Stephen Hawking oh, warned us to be quiet in the universe because any alien race we attract would be out of resources and would consume everything we have. Mm. Is the eventuality of the fixits to consume entire planets to reproduce <laughs> and grow? Is there another I dark mean, ending we don't get to see in this film? I mean, a lot of freaking fixits showed up at the right. end. Like 50 or 60. Is it like after the credits, if you watch, they eat all of Manhattan to like keep going? So to be fair, they don't consume. They do fix. They rebuild. Yeah. And they're not building something new. They're not building something better. They're simply recreating what was lost, right? So did all the fixes that show up in the end, did their, is their home planet destroyed? And they're now harvesting parts from other planets to rebuild their homeland. I mean, no. The mechanics of this are very <laughs> I mean, unclear. No. Like how they're able to restore glass and brick and cement. With metal. It's one of those things you just have to nod and say, okay, this is movie magic. Like this is, okay. you know, we're not going to logic our way into how any of this works. But to quote Frank, yeah. the quickest way to end a miracle is to ask why it is or what it wants. Oh yeah, that was a good line. It's a great line. Should we delve too deep into this question, thereby, poof, the miracle disappears. Mm, I don't know. Okay. So you're, what you're saying is I'm asking too many questions. All right. All right. I got it. No, I get message received. I think that line is the way that the the movie makers, the script writers, sorry, screenplay writers Ooh. and script writers, I guess I had both, yeah. were, were like, you know what? Don't ask too many questions about this movie. If you want to preserve a miracle, stop it with the questions yeah, fair already. Enough. No, fair enough. That's very good. That's very good. But I, I do not think they are consumers of worlds. They are, however, self-replicating 
devices, which is very much like, as I mentioned earlier, a von Neumann probe, which is somewhat of a theoretical thing. It's a concept. I just want to talk about it now. Named after a Hungarian-American mathematician and physicist called John von Neumann. Mm. He studied the concept of self-replicating machines. He called them universal assemblers. Hmm. Often referred to as von Neumann machines. And he theorized that such a construct would be comprised of five basic components. And I'll just say this very quickly. A probe, a life support system, Mm. a factory, (gasps) memory banks, and an engine. Tell me, are there any of those five things we do not see in the fixits? No, I think they have all that. Yeah. And they can self-replicate. So I'm just saying this, whether intentional or not, Mason, again, does at one point say they're like self-replicating machines. So they don't say these words. Yeah. But that's like a low-key thing, which I thought is unexpected in a movie like this. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. It was cool. It is really cool. It's neat. I'm glad. Look at this weird stuff. And hopefully it doesn't mean the machines will take over and we'll all be eventually Borg. I hope it doesn't mean that. (laughs) We are all Borg. Resistance is futile, everybody. So it's really fun. There's a lot of fun little facts and nods in the music. What do you think of the music for the movie, first of all? Brilliant soundtrack. The music was one of the greatest nostalgia factors of this movie. I think it really kind of pulled it in. That and the, you know, like the old photographs. I loved it. It's kind of this like jazzy swing dance band, 1920s era. Yeah, great music. Well, and that jazz music, those exact clips in this movie, show up again the following year in Cocoon 2. That's amazing. Cocoon the Return. They reuse the music. But what was so fun, I loved, like a quarter into the movie, uh, my wife turns to me and she's like, I've heard this music elsewhere. What is this music from? what? And I'm like listening really carefully. And I'm like, this really sounds like the sort of zany, fun music from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, yeah. And I looked it up and it is it is that's right they play maybe like four or five bars and it's like i mean i'm not going to do it justice but think of like beetle juicy sort of honey i'd shrunk the kids it'd be a great soundtrack for like a trolley car going through san francisco yes Um, but it is it's it's the same musical score that that those bars from 1989's honey i shrunk the kids well done it's kind of fun that was a fantastic pitch she she had an ear for it it was awesome Brava, Mrs. Ben. Brava. Mrs. Ben. It's <laughs> awesome. Any other like major through lines or things that just really struck you about the film that you want to make sure we talk about? There's some really interesting themes here. And some of them do link into stuff we've talked about on this podcast before. And one of them is like nostalgia and loss and transition. And we talked about our yeah, very first yeah. episode. We talked about the experience of nostalgia and how nostalgia is deep in times of transition and loss and difficulty. And this movie really kind of ties those two things together, I think, so well. Because there is a lot of loss and transition. These people are on a precipice of they might lose their home, their business, their yeah. everything. Birth and rebirth, right? You not only have mm. the fixits that give birth, but you also have... The Marissa character who's pregnant. Yeah. Her boyfriend does eventually come back, but then he just disappears again. And we see her develop a thing with Mason. So they kind of come together. It's kind of sweet. Yeah. She's really into his artwork and really understands him. Unlike the first lady who's like, you ate new things. You only like the old. It's 80s. Nobody likes reality. Nobody likes reality, sir. 
you know, fixing and destroying things. Like there's a lot going on with that. The old and the new, like they never really talk about these things, but I just saw these little common threads under there. And again, a lot of this is stuff we've talked about subtly or more directly on this podcast. And so I appreciated those elements of the movie. Totally. Great catches. Absolutely. There is, I mean, there's a lot with how dark and like weird this movie can get. There are a lot of really good messages in it. A lot of good lines, a lot of good themes. Yeah, absolutely. The movie sunsets on the apartment building having survived and massive skyscrapers all around it. Dwarfing this building. So Lacey uh, did not succeed in getting this one. He still develops around it, which is almost a a shot for shot mirror of Up, the Mm -hmm. adorable Pixar film Up, where the little man's house is still there, but the city is built up around it, uh, which I just thought was kind of fun. And also a little bit of Seattle lore. There's a building in Ballard that has this giant, it's that little house in Ballard where that like giant building is around. It's like a Trader Joe and a Marshall's and all this other stuff. There's like a fitness center there and it's around that little house. By the week that this airs, I would love if you could send me a pic for our Instagram folks. That's awesome. Absolutely. Typically in the eighties, anything that had Spielberg's name on it, uh, you know, it did well. Spielberg and Lucas like dominated the eighties. But Batteries Not Included was uh, kind of a sleeper. It still made a lot of money. It cost $25 million to make, and it took in $65 million at the box office. You know, reviews were kind of positive, but not gushing. They weren't like, this is the new family movie that everyone's going to wear out the tape for on their VHS. Right. You know, I love Siskel and Ebert kind of go back and forth. Siskel and Ebert, I, I especially love when they disagree. Oh, yes. Gene Siskel said it was a comic book with the best pages torn out. Ouch. And said it had forced warmth. But Ebert says it's oh. sweet, it's cheerful, funny family entertainment. He really likes the special effects. And I think Ebert had something really pressing. Did you see this quote about E.T. and Cocoon? I didn't. So Ebert says, uh, a quote, as characters in the movie, the saucers, what are what we know are the fixits, represent a cross between the elements of E.T., the extraterrestrial, cocoon, and short circuit. From the first, the notion of playful aliens. Sure. From the second, the idea that a force from beyond Earth could help make life joyful for old people. <laughs> sure. And from the okay. third, ideas about how machines can be given personalities and made to seem cute. I mean, I think he said much better what we've been talking about. Yeah. But he just kind of puts a a, a fine point on it. I agree. But the weirdest review I read is from a Washington Post film critic named Rita Kempley from 1987. Rita, what'd you have to say? And I'm going to read this to you, and I cannot wait for your reaction. Oh, goodness. Rita says, quote, Perhaps Spielberg and his pawn, Robbins, the director, want to implant maternal instincts in the collective consciousness. Or maybe they just can't think of another story. The disenfranchised must look to the stars for salvation. What a strange lesson to teach children, that they are basically helpless. Interesting. Kempley, who who hurt you? (laughs) What's wrong? Rather cynical. There's no children in this movie, so there's no kids learning lessons, so calm down. Wow. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of movies where parties need to look outside for assistance. That's okay. That's a very common thing in movies. Yeah, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings if they didn't go and get help. Help help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only only hope. Right, man, Rita. (laughs) Rita needed a vacation. Uh, So Jessica Tandy won Best Actress at the Saturn Awards, and the Saturn Awards celebrate the best in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror filmmaking, uh, which lost to The Princess Bride. And I gotta say, I get it. Yeah. 
it was nominated for for best film in this, but Princess Bride is pretty. It's it's a it's classic. If you talk about movies that stand the test of time, I'm I'm gonna argue Princess Bride has a little more cultural staying power than Batteries Not Included. <laughs> Just a little more. Yeah. Uh, but it did win Best Family Motion Picture for Comedies at the Young Artist Awards. Again, so who, it, are it, it who are these young artists? Who are these? Is it right, Michael exactly. Douglas? Who is? <laughs> yeah, little known Carlos the Goon was not <laughs> in the whole thing. You had no idea. That is everything I have for chemistry. Is there anything else you want to touch on? There's some plot points we could pick up, but I think it's time that we just talk about what came from this movie. What influences did it have in pop culture and the like? I think we're ready. I think we're ready. There's only one way that we're going to get to contemporary culture. And oh, that's... oh, hold on, hold on. We're so out of practice. We got to go to lunch. Oh my God. I wondered why I was so hungry. Dang, yeah. And I'm really looking forward to screws, bolts, mm. nuts, uh, you know, just where I can plug in and recharge a little bit for the rest of the day. I don't know about you, I'm going to chomp on an old Folgers coffee can, and I cannot wait. Yum. class trip without my tunes. <laughs> Larry. Perhaps it's your batteries. I use Duracell in mine. <laughs> Duracell batteries last longer. Regular carbon batteries wear out after just a few tapes, but you can play up to four times more with Duracell. The copper top battery. No regular battery looks like it. Hey, or lasts like it. We're full, we're rattling around a little bit in our tummies, and we've swooped to contemporary culture to talk about what happened after batteries not included. Maybe the batteries got included, and then what happened therefore after? The little-known sequel, Batteries Still Not Included, came out in 1993. (laughs) The the sequel, Where Are the Batteries? I cannot (laughs) find them in the house. You know, I don't know if it's just because I'm rusty. But this was one of the hardest contemporary cultures I tried to prepare for. I don't think there's a lot. It was really tricky to try and figure out what I could draw a solid line from Batteries Included to other media. You kind of mentioned it. The music that shows up in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The fact that the (laughs) actors are also in Cocoon 2, which has some of the... Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Same music as well, right? For Cocoon Yeah, Cocoon the Return also has the jazz music. I feel like you've kind of mentioned it. Well, there is the uh, interesting... Up up maybe uh, has a nod, unintentional or not, maybe. Uh, The Ashton Kutcher movie, Dude, Where's My Batteries? Dude, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that is a great pull. Uh, Nicely done. I mean, we we can talk about cast and crew a little bit. You know, I've got got a couple things for there. I mean, Steven Spielberg did nothing else after that. So that let's was move it. On. Spiel who? Like, I don't yeah, even know. I really exactly. had to dust it off to figure this Who's guy this out. Who's this Joker? Who's this clown? Speaking of Stevens, oh. Mick Garris, and if you recall, Mick Garris was the first scriptwriter for this premise. He leaves scriptwriting a little bit and goes on to direct, and he pairs up with another famous Steven mm. out of the 80s with whom we've done an episode about Stephen King. The one and only. 
And he goes on to do a lot of the adaptations of Stephen King's work to cinema. So he ends up directing Sleepwalkers, The Stand, The Shining, and at least a bunch more. But those were like yeah. the main three names that I, re- I recognized. Absolutely. But he also goes on to direct Psycho 4. And one of my totally inappropriate favorite movies as a child, he directs Critters 2. Oh, yeah. You like the Critters movies. I do like oh, yeah. the Critters movies. So he and Tremors. Critters the Critters uh, and Tremors. Two of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to do like a Munch film fest, like a, like a chompy <laughs> film fest and watch yeah. Tremors and Critters. It would be awesome. Beautiful. Um, so that's where Mick went after this. But I'm, I'm even more intrigued by Brad Bird. So Brad Bird, you remember, disenfranchised Disney writer. Mm. They left on creative differences. He came here and wrote this. He'd also written um, Johnny Five, Short Circuit. Mm-hmm. And Tremors, like you said. So he goes on to make his feature directorial debut right after this with Warner Brothers animated The Iron Giant. Oh. Another sentient, mm-hmm. non-piloted robot from outer space without yeah. explanation why yeah. he is here, who helps a small struggling community against some big baddies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then leaves after he helps and full of like heart and warmth. It was just like those two movies. Once I saw that Brad Bird directed it, it's a solid line between mm. those two movies. Yeah. The Iron Giant. Have you seen The Iron Giant? I actually haven't. You should go see it. It, it, it is really a beautiful movie. It's a great, you know, it's back in like, you know, hand-drawn animation days. It's gorgeous. It's a great film. Nice. And after that, Disney was like, hey, hey, boo. They called it like 2 a.m. And they're like, what you doing? Hey, it's like it's not a big deal, but like we miss you. Like it's just not the same. And Bird's like, I I'll come back. And he writes The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Never heard of them. Never, never, never. Box heard office of them. flops. Yeah, flops. Wow. But again, movies with such heart. Mm-hmm. And again, Ratatouille, tiny, small, unexpected hero helps our protagonist get through a rough patch. I'm starting to see as I did this research. Bird's got a style. Bird's sure. got a storytelling smile. Yeah. But Bird's got a storytelling style. He might you have a smile too. After. We don't he know. He probably smiles, the kind of guy that writes this kind of stuff. So it's just cool. I like his I like his career. It's neat. You know, John Hughes made his career off of, you know, teen comedies. He's doing it on these like little heartwarming tales of like help when you need it. Super into it. Super it's duper great. into it. Love it. I've got a couple other little things, but are there other things that you felt were through lines or, or what launched off of batteries not included i don't have a lot here this is maybe one of the rarest instances which is fine we don't have to belabor it you know it's just it it was kind of this little thing that happened and you yeah. know not a lot spawned off of it there's no sequels there's no it didn't launch a genre it's just it, it just was the only thing, and it's not really contemporary culture because it kind of happens at the same time, mm. but it is culture beyond the movie that, you know, being self-aware. Right. Harry, like I said, only has like a few lines, right? Yeah. And you said he watches like a lot of TV. So his lines all turn out to be advertising. Like slogans. Slogans. Yeah. So he says like, I think after he fixes weems, he says, we bring good things to life. Yeah. Which was a hook for General Electric, GE, for some of their consumer products. Yeah. And then he uses some kind of tool or something. I don't know what it is. But he says, don't leave home without it. Right. Which is an American Express credit card ad. And twice he says, battery's not included. Oh, he's the, he's the title drop. He says That's it the times. first line he says. And Batteries then he says it again. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, this is a unique one. I like your take on it that, you know, let's not reach. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, it's charming. It did modestly well. It made a $40 million at the box office. And that's kind of where it where it went. Yeah, absolutely. Just like the mystery oh. of the the flock of fixits coming to help and then vanishing afterwards without a trace, so did the film. Asterisk, lowercase, italics, batteries not included. Mm, mm, mm. That being said, there's only one class left in the day. Indeed. And that's math class. Okay. Let's head to math class and let's see how we think in 2022 batteries not included holds up. I know it's excessive, but I'm going to get into my black limo and <laughs> ride that down the hallway to math class. Don't drive through a construction site. Because that opening scene when I saw it drive through a construction site, I was like, a limo would never be found in a construction site. You're not going to scratch up a limo. Flat tires all over the place. I am sadly going to walk behind you, but I'm going to come with my, my goonettes with our bats to knock the door down so we can Please. add our input. Please. I need my, I need my muscle. <laughs> Your muscle. Exactly. So we're here in math class. We have mm. really gotten into the history, the chemistry, and the contemporary culture of Batteries Not Included, the film. Yeah. And on watching it again, since we did yeah. watch it as kids, what do you think of it today? So here are my thoughts. I feel like Batteries Not Included, it's a wholesome movie, and it's a movie you kind of don't need to think about much. Despite a few of those oh well moments we talked about, you do kind of realize quickly the stakes aren't high whenever disaster hits our residence in this little apartment that could. But even so, as mentioned, some of those moments are striking and they don't pull their punches. We just happen to know that the fix-its are there to make it all better. So when the building yeah. burns down literally to a pile of rubble, I'm like, it's coming back. I just knew it. It's the fix-its. And speaking of which, they're cute. They have personality. Again, without a lot of, they're there, they bring a lot of personality yeah. to those small little robotic creatures. And I really think that's thanks to the craftsmanship of ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. And I'm going to assume the puppeteers who are making all the things work. You know, as I mentioned, the fast motion shots obviously are dated, but you know, they're forgivable of the era. There's really not a bad apple in the bunch of actors. I do think that Jessica Tandy is the standout. Yeah, uh, she sure. really kind of gives all to her performance. We didn't talk about the big reveal uh, at the end, but she really, you know, when she kind of comes to terms with the true reality of what happened in her past, it's amazing. She's never afraid to look foolish or vulnerable in this movie. And mm. uh, rightfully so. She won that uh, Saturn Award for her acting, which is great. And her character's confidence in her delusions uh, that she's created around her in some ways make her more likable because she's just kind of, yeah. you know, you root for her even though she's, she's not fully in this world, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> the nostalgia factor, I do believe, is the highlight of the movie. We talked about this, the bouncy period music, the black and white and sepia photographs, that little shop of horrors style to the sets that make it feel kind of like you mentioned, it was almost like a stage play rather than existing in the real world. And I feel like all of that really kind of adds up for the viewer that they're almost experiencing a memory of a time rather than the time itself. Like it has that. Remember when you talked about um, a Christmas story has that kind of like gauzy, hazy, yes, nostalgic right, like a little uh, lens. Vaseline glare. all over the lens. Yeah, yeah. This does it in a different way through the sets and the cinematography and the music and such. I do have to say, I didn't vibe with this movie on rewatch like I thought I would. And while there's like nothing glaringly wrong with it, 
I think it's just kind of like middle of the road. It's a sweet, sincere little flick. I would say maybe its greatest strength is how it reminds us of the good in others and how we can do more when we come together. Especially in those uncertain moments of transition and loss. Ben, it may not include batteries, but by golly, it includes heart. No. I feel like for your summer vacation, you sound like the kid who like went to France with his family for a month. <laughs> and like just really got in, like really did some reflection, went to some museums. You know, that was good. That was really deep. I very literally cannot say it better. I think, uh, again, I told you why I picked this movie, but I didn't have mm. a really clear memory of it. And revisiting, you know, like we've talked about, it's intriguing to me because it sits in this pantheon of kids as the heroes interacting with aliens that are kind of like secrets from space. Right. There's no no kids in it, but kids loved this movie. And I think that's really interesting Mm. for kids to love a live action. Cartoons are different, right? There's not a lot of kids in like Thundercats or Silverhawks. Transformers. Or Transformers. Even G.I. Joe, right? Right. Besides the PSAs, where G.I. Joe's PSAs, like, don't touch course. that live wire. Like, you know, yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Thanks, mister. <laughs> right. So I, that really intrigues me um, yeah. as, as a point. It's also just such a weird movie. You know, we know that a lot of 80s movies that were targeted at children were generally darker than they are today that are targeted for kids. That was just like a thing that happened in the 80s. I think RoboCop is a great example where a lot of kids like love watching, loved RoboCop. Holy God, is that film violent. It's so gory and violent. Yeah. And so this movie sits in that weird space where like it is a family movie with all the heart and the earnesty that you talked about. But oh my God, is it really sad? Mm. And it's like really dark, like what these people are going through and Carlos and the Goonettes. It's a bummer. Mm. And that fascinates me. I think you, you're on point with like pretty much all the acting is delivered really well. The music is great and nostalgic mm. and really mm-hmm. fun. The sets, although feeling inauthentic, it's sort of part of the charm maybe intentionally, which is good. Mm. And of course, like I'm a sucker for puppets. We're in our third season, listener. If you don't know by now that I love puppets, it's the puppets. And like <laughs> ILM did an amazing work on the fix-its. They're very yeah. cool. They're unique. Yeah. Just like you said, they communicate so much personality without talking or making noise. They're funny. They're silly. They can be angry. They can be loving. They can do a mating dance. You know, it's all over the place. And I think you've just put it great. It's not in a pantheon. I would never tell anyone, OMG, you have to see Batteries Not Included. I did tell you you need to see The Iron Giant. I would not tell you you need to see Batteries Not Included. But it is, you know, I, I watched it with a group of people. It's one of the first things I've researched for 80s High with a group, which was kind of fun. Yeah. And everybody walked away like, wow, that was really charming. Like, that mm-hmm. was really great. People, it was very warmly received. So I think it holds up. And I think it's a fun watch. And I'm really glad that we got to kick off season three with this charming, heartwarming little film. It was great. It's a nice way to get back into the swing of things. It was such a fun conversation. So yeah, masterful pick, sir. Oof. Nicely done. Nicely done. Well. You passed first day of class. How about that? You passed. <laughs> Could there be a master more pick? Because we've gotten to my favorite part of the show. Yes. Where one of us, who knows who, somebody, gets to reveal the topic. For season three, episode two, Christopher, zwoop us down that road. Uh, it's zooping, sir. It's zooping. Zooping. Zoop, not zwoop. Zoop, not zwoop. Not a zwoop? It can't be a zwoop? 
It's different. Okay. It's, it's different. It's they, different. They, they cannot be confused. Yeah. So I was thinking about it, Ben, and I was like, you know, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Stop it. Don't you dare. All over. Oh, my God. No, I'm not talking about Phil Collins or the oh. murder he did. He definitely witnessed on that beach. But <laughs> we, <laughs> we talk about it in one of our episodes. It's anyway. Great. I'm talking about the fall, of course. We've already talked about this a little bit. Those nights are getting shorter. There's a little less daylight. The air is cooler and crisper. That means the summer of outdoor adventures will slowly be replaced by the cozy indoor activities we love so much. Time to get your hooga on. Let's do it. (laughs) Big hooga energy. So, Ben, the both of us love what I want to talk about in our next episode. Absolutely love, adore, can't get enough of. Oh, okay. Because, Ben, there's no finer way to spend a cold, rainy weekend than playing board games uh-huh. with friends and family. <gasps> Basilinda! <laughs> I can't wait. And, of course, we have to talk about 80s board games on this podcast. So for the next episode, I want all of us, not just you, Ben, not just me, but you two listeners – We need to go and open our closets. We need to head to our basements, pull open those dusty boxes, because I want us to talk about our favorite 80s board games. This is going to be like the classic sweet treats. We're going to hit all the highlights, Ben. The games you loved, the games you love to hate, and the games you love to put together to play with, but not actually play the game itself. Oh, great. Okay. All of those nostalgia hits. We're going to pry open that box. We're going to smell the old cardboard. It has that scent we know so well. And we're going to find those old pieces and cards in there. And we're going to play those amazing, wonderful 80s board games. Look, I feel like you're trying to lead me into a trap. But I am not going to feel sorry. (laughs) How this is going to go, I'm just going to roll with it. I love the pick. I'm very excited. That's great. I'm glad you you clued into what we were going to be talking Ah! about. (laughs) Nicely done. All right, everyone. Start shuffling those cards. Start arranging those pieces. Because on the next episode of 80s High, we're going back to our favorite board games. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.